This edition of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Barbara Bush Foundation Adult Literacy X Prize. Learn more by visiting the following website, adultliteracy.xprize.org. Hey everyone, this is Michael Winters of Ed Surge, and welcome to another Ed Surge Extra podcast. He's known by some as the startup whisperer, the guy that entrepreneurs turn to when they have questions about how to start or energize their business. I'm talking about Steve Blank, this serial entrepreneur, professor, and investor who is perhaps best known for his books, Four Steps to the Epiphany and The Startup Owner's Manual. Last week, Steve dropped by our studio to cast his experienced and critical eye on the business of EdTech. In a wide-ranging chat with our very favorite CEO, Betsy Corcoran, Steve talks about the history of Silicon Valley, EdTech's commercialization problem, and whether EdTech really is any different than regular tech. I know you're really going to like this one, so please stick around. All right, here we go. Welcome to this issue of the Ed Surge Extra Podcast. I'm Betsy Corcoran. I'm CEO and founder of Ed Surge, and I have a really special guest to share with you today. I'm really pleased to have Steve Blank, a longtime serial entrepreneur, the author of the business Canvas, one of the real kind of evangelists for lean startups, and I will confess he is an investor in EdSearch, something that we are very proud of. So first, hi, Steve. Thanks for coming. Hi, Betsy, and uh, thanks for letting everybody know how biased I am. (laughs) Hey, we're all about transparency here. So, Steve, um, you were very kind. You had me on your radio broadcast uh, not too long ago, and we talked a lot about becoming an entrepreneur, so this is my chance to get back at you. Tell me a story about what made you sure that being an entrepreneur was really for you? Yeah, that's a great question, Betsy, because it happened multiple times in my career. And it's very funny. It involved driving to work, is that uh, there were a major highway that bisects Silicon Valley called Highway 101. And I remember multiple times in my career, at least three, that I was driving into whatever startup it was. I had done eight of them. And wondering if today was the day they were going to make me pay to work there. And, <laughs> and I remember those times calculating how much I had saved up if I could afford to do that, depending on the price they were going to tell me I'd have to give up my salary. I, I don't know what made me think that. Did anyone but I, ever tell you you had to pay to no, work? No, but, but here's why. And this is the pivotal moment of thinking that I couldn't believe I had this job called entrepreneur, is I couldn't believe people actually paid you to, to be part of something that was inventing something that never existed and you really didn't know anything about the industry or, or customers or anything but you were making it up as fast as you can and learning about new technology, new people, new industries and creating them at the same time. I couldn't believe there was such a job and, and so that was my pivotal moment of unbelievable that you got to do this in this country and of course in hindsight it was unbelievable. This was a uh, a cluster of time and space that was much like Florence or, or Rome or or Paris in the 20s uh, that people came to to do extraordinary things that didn't exist in other places uh, anywhere else in the world at the time. Now we have um, entrepreneurial clusters in multiple places, but 
That was my epiphany, excuse, excuse the pun. Uh, it's, and it's a pun because, of course, you have a book called... The Four Steps to the Epiphany. Four Steps to the Epiphany. It's a great insight, um, but it does force me to ask you one follow-up question on that, which is if this is like Florence during the Medici's or other sort of moments in time, how far are we through this moment in time? You know, Sil- Silicon Valley uh, has been reinventing itself since the 1930s. I mean... We started as a test equipment valley with a company called Hewlett Packard. Um, uh, in the 1950s, we were actually microwave valley and weapon systems valley. Uh, Lockheed made uh, uh, submarine launch ballistic missiles here, and uh, our first three generations of spy satellites. And uh, and then the semiconductor, which is why it was called Silicon Valley, which we no longer make silicon in Silicon Valley in the 60s and 70s. And then we became PC Valley, and then we became Internet Valley. And in fact, it's such so much so that this valley has stopped being a center of products, though it still makes. It's really the center of innovation and entrepreneurship culture and, and process for the United States. And as long as it keeps that, that innovative culture, I think it will glom on to whatever the next wave of technology is. And right now it's apps and social media, but... I could easily imagine this becoming social media valley, or with Tesla right across the bay, the, this becoming autonomous vehicle valley with Google and Apple. Um, basically, you know, the coming car crash is when Silicon Valley runs over Detroit, not because yeah. we know how to make internal combustion engines, but that automobiles are going to become software platforms. Um, those are all the things we're best positioned to do, and so I'm not sure it's no longer a temporary phenomenon related to a specific piece of technology. Mm, that's great. And it does also bring up the fact that all of the entrepreneurship we've seen in education technology kind of draws on that energy. It draws on those ideas. Uh, which and draws on the last piece I didn't mention, by yeah. the way, which is also draws on the other component of entrepreneurial cluster is risk capital. That is crazy people with money. Um, you know, we think of entrepreneurship as crazy people with technology or insight or passion, which is all true, but it doesn't become businesses until we could get people who are not bankers or the government giving you loans, but people who are willing to, to have a portfolio that is a set of companies understanding that most of them will fail in that portfolio, but the ones that succeed will more than return the entire investment in the rest of that portfolio. That's crazy talk to bankers or other financial asset classes, but we have a concentration also here in this valley of those people who make those types of bets, and EdTech is getting now their share of that money. Yeah. No, it certainly is, and we we tend to chronicle that um, in our kachings. but it does raise some really interesting questions. So let's think about the education technology sector for a moment. Is there anything special? Is there anything different? Are there any Of course. It's aspects? all different. It's They're all different. different. They're all different. But, but you know, you've just described entrepreneurship as, you know, people with crazy passion, crazy ideas, crazy technology, crazy insights, a little bit of crazy money, perhaps. Um, and then you, you also describe very nicely this idea that there have to be a couple of really big hits to cover all of those other losses. Now, is that the right structure of an industry for that is serving education and students? Well, I, I think that's the perpetual conundrum for EdTech is, you know, are, are we actually nonprofits, you know, trying to convince ourselves we could make money or, or are we, you know, revenue-based companies that ought to declare themselves nonprofits in most of those days, in fact, Sometimes I ask some boards, is maybe we should just declare ourselves a 501c3 and be done with it. Um, 
and and of course, you and your listeners understand all the constraints uh, about the ad tech space. And I just want to remind you the the problem and both both benefit of the people who start a good number of these companies is they're passion driven to solve a an educational or social problem they see that's necessarily a strength and almost often the undoing of the company. Why Why the undoing? Well, what makes that a liability? Well, because if your passion is to solve a particular problem or need you see, at times you kind of don't step back and ask the question, so is there any possible way to make money at this? And if so, how is this business different than you know Facebook or Google or something else? And of course, when you use something called the business model canvas that is kind of deconstructing the, the gee here's the problem I want to solve versus oh who are the customers the, almost always the first level of confusion for first time entrepreneurs in this space is confusing the users of the product whether it's software or some educational technology with the other 15 other customers you have to address. Oh, if it's in the school system, am I talking to the teachers? What's the role of the parents? Oh, wait a minute, there's a school administration. Oh, how does stuff get bought, you know, in the school? Oh, it's capital equipment or it's a three-year cycle. Oh, wait a minute, is this through charter schools? Or wait a minute, is this a union-based public school? And are there rules and processes in each one of them? If all you're doing is being driven by that passion to solve a particular problem, good for you to start because that's what's required but to turn that idea into a business requires you to solve and first understand and then solve all those other pieces of that commercialization puzzle does that make sense yeah is it harder in education is it harder because we either do get sort of so wrapped up in the passion or is it harder because there's also a lot of byzantine structures out there between who's the real buyer, who's the real sure, yes customer and, you're serving? Yes and yes. I think it's a double bogey. One is the, you know, step one is is that a lot of ed tech startups are started by people with passion to solve a problem who not don't necessarily understand the entire path to commercialization. And, and, and what I mean by that is all the other things you just alluded to, you know, multiple channels and all of these layers of bureaucracy and union versus non-union and, and all those other issues. We've now seen this movie enough times that shame on a first-time entrepreneur for not spending some time and saying, maybe I ought to talk to the 15 other people who were equally passionate and got their teeth kicked in. Uh, and, and so to answer your question, is this more difficult than putting an app on your iPhone? Yes, but not really, because every industry looks better from when you're on the outside. It's not harder than selling to the government. It's not harder than doing life sciences and trying to get FDA approval and for regulatory stuff. I mean, it is a difficult business, but not, but not only is it not unsolvable, that is double, excuse the double negative, <laughs> it's very solvable because we now have enough data to kind of tell a first-time entrepreneur, here are the 10 gotchas that every startup in EdTech runs into. You know, please check these boxes, and before you spend a dime and hire more than you and your co-founder, explain to me that you've talked to teachers, parents, administrators, you know, existing companies, and understand what these obstacles are. Draw that diagram for me, and yes, I understand you want to talk to me about your product and how you're going to solve it for the K through 12 and what you have. I get it. Good. Talk to me about the rest of the business. And that's usually when you kind of get the deer in the headlights look. And it's okay that you don't know that on day one. 
but before you take a dime from anybody or before you write any code or before you do anything, you ought to invest the same amount of time and passion in discovering what it takes to build a business versus what it takes to solve that particularly, particular education component. And this is not to talk anybody out of that, it's just to save you years of time, money, frustration for you to discover you just run into the same problem the other 43 companies who failed here. And, and it doesn't mean they're unsolvable, it just means you ought to get a head start in understanding that. Does Did that it, make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Did Amplify fail to do that? You know, I don't know enough about the story, and I'm, I'm not going to go there. But I, I think a lot of companies just fail because they confuse their passion for, for the problem and the solution and whatever from understanding w how to translate that passion, again, into a repeatable and what I call repeatable and scalable business model, which is a fancy term for saying that's what you're searching for. With all due respect, you're not searching for how to solve that particular education problem, well, that's your passion and that's going to be the core of your business, that's not the business. But you're searching for a fit. A, a fit between what you have and who the customers are. And in this case, in education, the customers are almost never one group. It's never just the students. You might get lucky and you got an app and the students will pay, you know, or the parents will pay for that app and you're, you're done. But boy, if you're saying, and then we sell it to schools, let me tell you, you have at least six customer segments you don't even know about yet. And, oh, by the way, you know, because a good chunk of education has a set of arcane rules about unions and distribution and whatever and school administration and budget cycles and how they acquire and, and who owns the distribution channel and whatever, if you don't know any of that, you're going to spend the next three years spending someone else's nickel and your time when you should have actually done this homework. Should have done that homework. Um, we try to help you do that homework at EdSurge. We're trying to write those stories every single day. But your point, you're actually giving me encouragement here because yeah. what you're telling me is that there's not something so fundamentally odd or different about education that we still have to ask the same kinds of questions that you ask right. in every industry, yes. which is, do I have a solution? What are the customer's problems? Do I have a way of solving that? And then do I have a fit between how I'm going to get them to pay for that solution um, and how I'm going to succeed? And I'll say the, the um, maybe the difficult overlay for education is that not every one of those customer segments you need to address has your interests or your students' interests aligned with you. That is in education, some of them are aligned for optimizing themselves, either mm -hmm. optimizing tenure or optimizing minimizing budgets or optimizing, no, we have existing vendors, etc. But that's just par for the course. Once you understand that, oh, there are these issues and we need to, to deal with them. And by the way, they just didn't appear yesterday when you started your company. And so if we could just say, so what is the issue dealing with a unionized school versus a charter school? What is the issue that there's a dominant supplier of software in this uh, school district versus us as a newbie? How does that work? And But don't act like, oh, we just discovered this. Right. And that's the distinction that I try to make to first-time entrepreneurs who are passionate about solving a particularly difficult educational component because their scale tends to be higher on the social justice scale than, than it is on the let's make a business scale. And sometimes my advice is maybe you ought to set this up as a nonprofit because that's where you're about to end up if you don't put on or get a co-founder who actually could add up a spreadsheet and figure out how to crack the code. 
Perfect. Does that make sense? It and, makes a lot of and sense. And this is not to discourage your listeners about wanting to solve the, these educational or social justice problems. The world depends on you in doing that. But you don't want to spend three to four years of your life and friends and family money or worse, venture money in rediscovering other, the, the fact that these issues exist. So no, EdTech is not harder than many other businesses. It's just that the people who tend to enter the business tend to be more di- naive about business than in most other fields that I encounter. Fair enough. Let's talk about unicorns for a minute. I mean, Silicon Valley has uh, come into this uh, fad for unicorns recently. Uh, whoever named it, gee, thanks so much. Uh, and uh, the and for idea- your listeners, unicorns are billion-dollar valuation startups, which we all giggle about. Which we all giggle about, and yet when you go and you talk to venture capitalists, they they leave you with this sense that they're all sort of unicorn hunters. Uh, is this a problem for Silicon Valley? Does this create sort of well, it's uh, a problem for high tech, stakes? For, for sure. It's not a problem for the Valley. I okay. Mean, though we're playing the world's greatest kind of, you know, multi-level marketing Ponzi scheme because the, the music is going to stop. Multi-level <laughs> marketing Ponzi scheme. Ooh, that's a good phrase. Okay, but, so why is this a multi-level marketing Ponzi scheme, well, Steve? Well, eventually what we'll find is not all these companies, in fact, few of them, are, will actually generate enough revenue to justify their valuations. In so, any industry. In any industry. Right. And, and But again, it's a portfolio place. Some of them will. And, you know, people mm. laughed at Facebook when it went public and laughed at the valuation, laughed at Google, certainly laughed at Tesla. And now people are, you know, immensely regretting not buying into their IPOs. The bigger, point is not bigger m- problem for EdTech, though. Well, the problem for EdTech is there's very few. In, in fact, I can't. I'm, I'm, maybe you know who they are, but Linda Wyman, who right. actually spoke to us in our humble podcast right. studio uh, six months ago. But we're running. But we still have fingers left on our hand when we talk about potential unicorns in the edtech space. Right. And and, and that means that you're um, fighting for capital. That is fighting for the attention of venture capitalists who could make those investments in social media companies or hardware companies or consumer or what, whatever's in the now hot unicorn space. And they're just doing a math problem in their head. They're going, so why should I invest in EdTech if that's not something that's going to give me obscene returns? Venture capitalists are not, you know, they're not nonprofits. Uh, they are the the pinnacle of greed, and, and I mean that in a positive sense. <laughs> no, 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 because they fuel this, this risk capital economy, but they're not looking to solve educational problems. Sure. And there are exceptions. There are exceptions. But, you know, let's even think about the venture capitalists. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say that, you know, I spent a lot of time talking with Arthur Rock, right, the original venture capitalist of Intel. Yep. Arthur Rock was at Intel every single, I think, Friday afternoon for for conferences. He was practically a part of the management team. That's not typically how most VCs work today. Today, they're a little bit more like roulette players. They put down a bunch of bets and then they go home. Is there something about the structure of venture capital that has um, really created this unicorn phenomenon that isn't necessarily a healthy phenomenon? Well, you know, what's happening is that it's less so the venture capitalists and more the late-stage funds. So one could argue that the seed and Series A and B, while inflated, have not gone out of control. It's, in fact, the hedge funds and the later-stage funds that have actually inflated the the, uh, valuations to to the billion-dollar mark. Mm -hmm. But the real question is for edtech startups is that when you walk into a, a venture fund that's just been looking at a bunch of potential investment opportunities and then they look at the education space which is fraught with all these difficulties though solvable 
the idea of uh, an ed tech startup having a couple hundred million dollars of revenue in year five, if not zero, is low. There's a handful who have accomplished that, and, and we celebrate them. And so the real question is, are, is where do ed tech startups get funded, and are there venture capital firms that actually do focus on ed tech um, because it's the right thing to do, and they'll be happy to make money, but that's not their number one goal. But they've got a little bit of that passion thing going, right. too. Yeah. Right. And I think Jennifer Carolyn's new fund, which is called Reach. Reach, is probably the canonical example that I could think of, but maybe you know others that are kind of focused on, yes, we have a venture fund, and yes, we focus on ed tech, and yes, we'd like to make money, but no, we're not going to go fund social media companies and other things. That's we're right. just focused on ed tech. Right. And so I think the country is better for um, venture funds like that. I just want to point out to... to um, our listeners that but don't expect that other VCs have that same point of view and it's not because they don't like EdTech but because they've taken money from their investors and their investors expect them to be optimizing their return. EdTech at, at most times in, in our history has not been the place to get an optimum return. Though as, as you pointed out some of them some EdTech deals have been spectacular. Yeah okay two last questions. Yep. One is what do you like about what you see in ed tech today. I mean, we've been at this as an industry intensely now for, I'd say, about five years. Since about 2010, we've seen this really explosion of new businesses and uh, different uh, different explorations of business models. Over the last five years, what have you seen that you like in ed tech? Well, uh, let me just go full disclosure. I mean, my biggest ed tech investment is Udacity. Um, okay. And uh, when Sebastian uh, was leaving Stanford, I wrote him his first or second or whatever check, um, only because I actually did one of the first MOOCs online. If, if you haven't seen my MOOC on Udacity, your listeners should go see it. Actually, fun how to do a startup. How to do a startup. How to do yes. A startup. Yes. Uh, and so I actually, um, and in fact, all my classes are taught with a flipped classroom model where my videos are the homework um, and then we just have class time now for for the things we want to what used to be homework is now class time and and so we truly have flipped the classroom and that kind of exposed me to new learning modalities and experiments in in education and I've been experimenting with how I teach you know, I teach at Stanford and Berkeley and Columbia and NYU and what, all at the same time? All at the same time, actually. <laughs> so called drive-by teaching. But what the schools have allowed me to do, even though they've nev never actually known I've been doing it, is running science experiments on different teaching modes. And, and you know, MOOCs were the hot thing a couple of years ago. And now we've learned that, gee, maybe 10 to 15% of people are capable of learning that way. But no, MOOCs are not going to replace personalized instruction. And and so what I love is what we're learning is, is that we don't – actually know yet the right way to efficiently teach the students. While everybody uses declarative sentences of tools and, and charter schools, I mean, the big you know charter schools versus public, I think they, they, we don't have enough data on any of this, and nor do I think we've invented the ultimate you know, educational system or educational modality to, to maximize the way we um, educate our students. And so I think that's what's great about um, educational startups is while well, every one of them think they have the answer where I said no 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 we're all kind of advancing the field one startup at a time by trying a series of experiments and our country lets us do that and as much as we complain about how rigid our educational system is the surprise is where we get to run any of these experiments in, 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 in the system we have and so I think um, 
we're just going to see uh, over time our students in our schools get much better for, for these startups. I agree. I think it's an amazing moment. And right. I think in some ways what we're learning is how do we create a set of learning experiences, a set of schools that let everyone ultimately say what you said at the beginning of this interview, which is, oh, my God, I love what I do so much yeah. from 9 to 5 or 9 to 9 that somebody should be charging me to do okay. this. And to get there would be an amazing thing. Okay, last question. Big prediction. Here we go. What would you like to see different? I'll give you a choice. You can take a year from now, five years from now, or ten years from now. Which would you which would you like to bet on? What, what would you like to see different in one of those periods of time? Well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm um, kind of a techie by heart, even though I'm now an educator. Um, I can't wait to see, to be honest, what educators and education startups are going to do with uh, VR systems and augmented reality, just on the techie side of me. Um, I don't think it's going to replace anything, but for example, in STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math, just imagine being in the middle of a simulation. It feels or, like a magic school bus does. trip, doesn't or, it? To or walk or right imagine inside. history, right? And now you don't need to visit Williamsburg. You're now in Williamsburg, and 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 again, there'll be these enormous claims, and there'll be you know a whole wave of content and a whole wave of startups. I, I just think when when these things become commercially available to school systems, there will be a whole set of content providers that will be doing a whole nother wave of uh, educational. Um, curricula that I can't wait to see what that's going to look like. And I think that's probably a five, maybe ten-year uh, uh, ten outlook. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure we have you back then. Maybe next time we do this show, we'll be doing it in virtual reality, and everyone can be here inside the podcast studio with us. Steve, thank you so much. Thanks, Beth. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you like what you hear on this podcast, we have plenty more of them. Head over to edsurge.com to check out more interviews with edtech celebrities and discussions of what's happening in the industry. Okay, I'm Michael Winters. Thanks for joining us.